Welcome to Arc Next Sessions. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Earlier today, on Wednesday, January 13th, 2016, we announced that Alejandro Aravena was selected as the 41st laureate of the Pritzker Prize, a prize often referred to as the most prestigious international architecture award. Aravena operates under two organizations in Santiago de Chile, his private firm, Alejandro Aravena Architects, as well as the so-called Dutank Elemental, where he serves as the executive director. Archonnect readers might best know his work on uh, social housing projects, as well as a few other university projects. He has been a visiting professor at the Harvard GSD, as well as a member of the Pritzker Prize jury from 2009 to 2015, and this year will be the director of the Venice Biennale. We're joined on the podcast by executive director of the Pritzker Prize, Martha Thorne, who has been in that position since 2005. And I'm going to start out just by asking you, Martha, this is a bit of a large question to begin with, but what was it about Aravena's work that made the jury single him out as worthy of the Pritzker this year? That's a, a great a great place to start. It's a great question. If you look at the objectives of the Pritzker Prize, from the time it was founded, it always had two parts to it. One talked about the art of architecture. In other words, the highest quality design architecture, pushing the envelope in terms of the profession, in terms of buildings and the built environment. And the second part of the objectives of the prize talks about making the, a substantial contribution to humanity. And I think that in a, the case of Alejandro Aravena, 2016 laureate, these two aspects are there in very powerful and very clear ways. And I think what the jury saw, and as you know, I, I sit in on the jury meetings. I'm the person who serves the jury, who handles the nomination process. But in the jury meetings, I don't have a voice and I don't vote. I'm only there to give information if they need it. But the decision as to who will be selected as laureate in any given year or laureates is entirely up to the jury members. So in this case, when I'm speaking about what I think the jury had in mind, it's based on the citation, it's based on their conversations. And they talked about those two aspects. They talked about the strength of his design, his architecture. They looked at buildings that he undertook, especially for the Catholic University in Santiago de Chile. And all of those showed a sensitivity not only to the people who used it, but to the context, to making a public space that was part of the university, that was part of this broader context. The second part that has to do with substantial contribution to humanity can be seen in the, especially in the social housing projects that Alejandro Aravena and his team have undertaken, not only in Chile, but in Mexico and other places. And those social housing projects are a collaborative effort, not only from the office, Elemental, but with the residents who will live there. And it's, it's an understanding of architecture far beyond just the built environment. It's an understanding of the aspirations of the people. It's an understanding of architecture as contributing a step to their being able to improve their condition, to aspire and to achieve a higher quality of life in the cities where the public housing is built. 
And so you mentioned the projects for the university in, in, in Santiago. Are there other particular, especially in the social housing projects, are there any particular projects that stood out? To tell you the truth, I, I personally have uh, visited two different projects in Santiago de Chile, and both of the projects had, had things in common. They're minimal housing in terms of size. What I, what I, when I say they're minimal, the idea, I believe, of Elemental, which is the, the company that Alejandro heads, which has this social purpose, and public housing or social housing is one of the purposes. They've decided that housing is not just making the rooms where people live, but it's also allowing them to invest in the house so that in a future they can expand that space or they can sell it. So they decided that what what is it that is so important for people to have when they're aspiring to their first house or when they're aspiring to a new home? And what are the things that only an architect and the team can give or only the situation can give? And one is the location. So I know that Alejandro and his team fought very much for keeping people located in the neighborhoods that they previously lived in if they were shanty towns or slums. The second thing that he understood is that things like the structure of a house, the plumbing, the infrastructure that goes into a house is something that residents are not able to do on their own. On the other hand, residents can, they can probably tile the bathroom, they can paint the walls, they could even add another story or enclose a porch or enclose a room if they had some basic idea of how to do it. And if they were able to invest in this, maybe not at the first moment, but in the future. So in that sense, I think it's really exciting. The housing projects that I saw, the part that may have been built originally with the hand of the architect may have been 400 square meters, but always with the possibility to be completed, to be added on, to then create a house of 800, 1,000 thousand or even a little bit more square feet. So this is understanding not only physical space, not only domestic space in terms of where you live, but it's also understanding that architecture is something that is built today, but needs to contribute to the future. And I think that in, in that sense, the public housing that I saw in Santiago de Chile was, was extremely successful. It worked in the first day, but it also had the flexibility in the room so that the residents could contribute to it, could improve it, and therefore improve their living conditions, improve their investment, and still, because of the location, still be able to get to their jobs, use public transportation, etc. So, Martha, I have a question. This is Donna. They relate specifically to those projects, the Quinta Monroy housing, I think it's called, and the, the notion that it's a half a house, that you're building a half a house that the owners can then update as they want. Some of the articles I've been reading today about Alejandro's work, people who are not architects seem to be looking at those houses and saying, oh, they're so boring. They're just boxy. And they don't seem to be understanding the bigger picture that this is a sort of a platform. It's not something that is a finished, beautiful building. It's something that is a, a 
a platform for people to make into their own architecture in a way. And that leads me to the question of, of how the Pritzker communicates the intent of the prize to people who are not architects. This is the Pritzker is the, the most well-known of the, the architecture prizes. And so the audience for who wins it ends up being a much broader audience than just architects. So how does the Pritzker go about choosing what should be awarded and then describing that or, or having an intent towards how that that type of architecture is described to the general public rather than being an award by architects for architects? That is a big challenge. And I think exactly what the jury decides to award each year and the direction of the prize is something that they struggle with. It's something that they discuss every year. If you look at the evolution of the prize over time, I think it's clear, at least in my mind, that in the first years, it was much more focusing on what was sort of accepted as outstanding buildings, uh, individual buildings by certain architects. And I think if we look in, in recent years, there are many examples in recent years where it has to be architecture, quality architecture, plus something else. Somehow experimentation or innovation or attention to a certain type of problem like sustainability. In the case of Shigeru Van, who won two years ago, it was the ability to create architecture that could respond to natural and man-made disasters, which are an increasing problem that the world is facing. So I think in that sense, the, the, the Pritzker jury is on one, is, is evolving in its message about what is important in terms of the role of architecture. And, and I think we see that in their choices. It is a challenge to know how do you communicate this to a broader audience? And I think that we're continually trying to do this in a better and better way. Of course, we use social media. That, that's a great platform that helps us. The jury citation tries to be very clear in pulling out the aspects of the laureate and his or her work that they think are outstanding. And then we also try to have at the time of the ceremony and, and also throughout the year, either symposia, panel discussions, we encourage the laureate to lecture. And then, of course, we rely on people like you on the press to help with the message. And in that sense, I have to say that the press is every year is becoming much more uh, uh, an important partner in explaining the architecture of the, the Pritzker laureates and delving much deeper into the message. I can remember 10, 15 years ago, the headlines often were just the name, the country, and saying this person or persons won the prize. I think the press nowadays, because uh, the prize is seen as truly international, we have many voices from around the world that are trying to explain the reasoning behind it, and sometimes in a very positive way, and, and also with a critical eye. And both of those viewpoints, whether it's positive or whether our questions that are asked and it's a more critical look at it, I, I think are very, very valid. Martha, can you give us a little insight into the jury's process in selecting a winner each year? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. The nominations process of the Pritzker Prize is a twofold process. I accept 
nominations from any licensed architect anywhere in the world. Someone, and, and I have to say, I don't check and ask somebody, ask to see people's diplomas or their license. <laughs> Anyone who sends me an email that is a serious email suggesting a candidate for the next year is something that, that I appreciate. It goes onto a list. If I don't know, or if I think the jury may not know who the candidate is, I will ask for a CV or a brief uh, bibliography or a bio of the, the nominee. I gather a lot of information on those unsolicited nominations that come in from all over the world. And then every year I also write about, about 200 letters to magazine editors, academics, museum directors, business people, politicians, critics from around the world. And I ask their opinion. Who do you think should should be a candidate for the next year? And how many nominations do you typically vet in that in this first process? Well, it, you know, it varies from year to year. And this is one thing that it's, I'd rather not say a specific number. The, the other thing that's important is it doesn't matter if someone is nominated 15 times or one time. It goes on a list. I never reveal where the nomination comes from. So it's, that's really a very open process. My job is to uh, then make sure the jury has information uh, about nominees. Uh, of course, there is, it's whittled down. We, the jury can't discuss, you know, hundreds of names, but it becomes a small list. And the interesting thing about the jury process is contrary sort of to public opinion, the jury does not come into a deliberation meeting and start talking about names and start voting. The jury, I would characterize the deliberations as, it's probably more like electing the Pope. It's a conversation that starts at a very broad level, talking about architecture, talking about where has it gone in the past year, what are the important issues facing architecture, and then it spirals into a tighter and tighter spiral, and then they finally start talking about nominees. Do these discussions always happen in person together? or Yes, do they? Okay. yes, yes. Yes. No one connects by phone. No one sends in a... A surrogate? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Since 2005, when, when I have been on the jury, I think we, one jury member one year could not make the meeting because of a, uh, a serious illness. But other than that, they are always face-to-face. And it, it, it is um, a conversation. It's a very fervent passionate conversation. Of course, people may disagree. They often disagree with each other, but they they discuss with the shared purpose of understanding each other and arriving to a conclusion that is not only comfortable for all the jury members, but expresses a clear and focused opinion of the jury in its entirety. And People ask how long it takes, and I say it's just, it's like, it's like electing, the, it takes as long as it takes. 
until they are unanimous in their decision. When does the discussion typically start? It often takes place at the beginning of the beginning of the new year. This year it was a little bit earlier and that was due to scheduling on the that we had to do on the part of uh, some of the jury members and uh, because we weren't sure exactly we thought the date of the ceremony which the Pritzker family decides would be earlier. So we we did the deliberations a little bit earlier this year than normal, but typically it's in the first four to six weeks of the new year. And so throughout different juries, as they progress through the years, we do see a few common names. Many jury members are on the jury for many years. A few only stay on for one or two. But we've seen in the past that there are definitely carryovers. Um, and even that, if you're having a, you know, a, a meeting of the minds of sorts and everyone is d- trying to discern what is important and happening in architecture at that moment, um, it's easy to imagine that that group comes to come s- some kind of agreement about, you know, what direction the Pritzker should be going in as well and how that should align with the direction they see architecture going in. So what do you think uh, an appointment like Aravana is pushing the, the um, direction of architecture towards and, and how it shows what the Pritzker is being, is deeming important in architecture right now? Yeah, just to clarify, uh, the jury members, we ask them to serve a minimum of three years. And jury members often represent sort of, they always represent different points of view, but they also represent different places throughout the world. They come from different geographic regions. And we like to have a balance of practicing architects, business people, critics or writers, maybe academics. So it's a varied group. and, And there is change. Every year there's slight change, but there is continuity as well. I ask because there was a specific discussion in the past few years when Aravana was on the jury about the direction he had kind of advocated the Pritzker to go into a little bit more, that in some ways his win this year is seen as a little bit ironic, given that he was not only on the jury last year, but that he also was advocating vocally as a representative of the Pritzker on the jury for the prize to be more inclusive towards socially-minded architecture and less of an indication of just the uh, flashiest, most impressive singular projects of the time. I think if you look back over the recent years that there are messages about broader role of architecture that we can see in several of, of the the citations over the recent years. We can look at, I mean, the, the one really clear one, but quite a ways back is Glenn Merkett and his passionate and defense of the environment and his actions through his architecture to make sustainable sustainable, environmentally sensitive buildings that he says sit lightly on the earth. I think the the decision to select Wang Shu from China, his architecture is one that is very sensitive to the legacy. It's, a, it, it's, almost, it's almost a voice which is calling for action to understand and respect the legacy of China, but also transform it and incorporate it into architecture for the 21st century. Of course, Shiruban is somebody. In the case of Fray Otto recently, the idea, again, of environment and the importance of environment, the importance of collaboration. And finally, Alejandro, through his social activism, as well as the quality of his architecture. You know, I think one thing that's, that is interesting and, and has to be remembered 
everyone on the jury, and, and I can say this as executive director and sitting in on meetings and listening to the jury, there is no one member of the jury that can sway all the other members. They are extremely independent people. They are very clear thinkers. They have very defined ideas. Um, and so Alejandro clearly through his work takes one path but had the other jury members not been advocates of that path on their own, it wouldn't have made any difference. So I think Alejandro is, he reflects a general attitude of the jury. He reflects not only of the jury, but I, I think he reflects certain tendencies in society that we can see it in the press. We can see it in educational institutions. People are asking, what is the role of architecture today and what can it do in the face of such important and severe problems that are facing different societies as we go forward. I think that reaction to the Pritzker so far, at least, has been overwhelmingly positive and that most everyone is agreeing with uh, Arvanel's work is definitely deserving of a prize of this nature. However, it is a little bit strange that the prize was awarded the year after he was no longer a juror. And I think that we're certainly wondering what is the why doesn't the Pritzker have some kind of process or um, policy surrounding giving the prize to a prior jury member, um, whether they should say, OK, we're not going to give the prize to anyone who's been on the jury within the last, say, year or two or so. Doesn't that present something of a conflict of interest for the Pritzker? You know, I have to say, I can understand, I can sympathize with the question. But on the other hand, I think anyone who has seen Alejandro Aravena's work, I think anyone who has listened to him lecture and has reviewed his career, which is not a short career, it's perfectly possible to say, you know, his work stands on its own. And if the jury believes that a message of the importance of the social role of architecture in the year 2016 is the one that they need and want to give in the face of such extreme conditions as we see not only war-torn places and thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees needing housing. If we look at if we look at cities, major cities and urbanization and the and the rate of urbanization and the inability to provide safe and sanitary housing for so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, then I think to say, well, no, you should wait a year or two and then maybe consider giving the prize to, to Aravena. You know, it's like, it seems kind of, it, it seems not generous in, in, in my mind. I, I think that the jury is deeply concerned with social issues. I think they saw in Aravena an outstanding example of high quality design, commitment, and innovation in a way to attack social problems. And with a success rate that is not only in the field of architecture, but goes beyond that. I have to say that um, there would have been no interest to give, I mean, what, what would be the reason to the conflict of interest. Somebody's on the jury and therefore they're not worthy. Only that 
as, as we saw with the case with Shigeru Ban, where he was a member of the jury on the Pritzker prior to being awarded the Pritzker. And that might not to say that Arvin is not deserving of the prize. I think that that a lot of the coverage has been very explicit in saying, including ours, is that the work does is is excellent and, and does um, qualify as a just a measure of what work is deserving of the prize. But the question of simply a policy of saying, well, this person already has has already played a significant role close to the members of the deciding people for the jury of the Pritzker. That kind of presents a, a bit of a friction. And merely in the fact that, of course, he's deserving, but he's also quite young still. And the suggestion that maybe if the Pritzker is insistent in giving the prize to a living architect, that perhaps his time may still come. I think that was really just what the suggestions were going around. Yeah, you know, those are interesting points to discuss. But I also think, you know, when when you look over the history of the Pritzker Prize, there is an element of timing. Timing in the sense that, on one hand, the Pritzker Prize tries to be a leader. It tries to be a beacon, shining a light on important issues, shining a light on on directions that maybe the, the profession could be taking, should be taking, or new directions that need more interest or a boost. And there are many deserving architects, I'm sure, throughout the world. But this shining the light on on an intention, on a message, is something that I think that uh, is very positive on the part of the Pritzker Prize to be a leader. The other thing is, we have to remember that the Pritzker Prize is within a context, a broader context, and there is a lot of concern. There is a lot of debate. We see this in the rise of, of collaborative firms, of collectives. We see this in the rise of not-for-profits. We see a general concern about what is the social role of architecture, a questioning of, is it possible to have design for the other 95% and not just for the top 5%? So in the face of that, I think considering the importance of the pressing issues to say, well, let's wait a couple years. I, I mean, it seems, I have to repeat, it seems really ungenerous in my mind. The jury was very clear about the message that they wanted to give, and they found that message reflected in a person who has incredible talent and the highest caliber of, of ability when it comes to design. And that is the message that they wanted to give this year. Who knows in two years what the message will be? I hope it will continue to be one of expanding the role of architecture for the good of society. I, I certainly hope and, and I believe it may go in that direction. But to sort of wait you know, again, I have to say, I, I think it's a pressing enough issue this year, and it's a message the jury wanted to give. So whether or not Alejandro was on the jury before or not, I really have to say, from my point of view and what I've seen, I think it's a moot point. Ken, did you have a question? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about what, what, what you've just said. And respectfully, I, I have to ask you this. 20 years is hardly a career. And, and Alejandro has been practicing since 1994. There are other architects out there that have been practicing for 30 or 40 years that certainly merit and have been talked about for years of not getting the Pritzker Award. And I think there is some, there is a room for criticism around your discussion about this particular architect at this particular time. 
So I wonder at the same time, is the Pritzker more influenced by the times or they really have a message to say to the profession or are they more influenced by what's going on in the world? And how does that, how do you reconcile architects who have been around and practicing and doing substantial work? It seemed that the Pritzker was more about the embodiment of that person's particular career, not a particular moment. Yeah, the, specifically, the, the Pritzker is granted for a body of built work. And again, that perhaps distinguishes it from, from other prizes that may be for influence or teaching or, you know, other specific uh, aspects of architecture. So it's a body of built work. Again, from 1979, when the prize was founded, there was never a stipulation at the number of buildings. And, and I think, if again, if we look throughout the years of the Pritzker Prize, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of the beauty of the prize. Um, there is room for a lot, of different, uh, a lot of different people and worthy candidates within that broad definition of a body of built work that embodies the art of architecture and makes a substantial contribution to humanity. And there have been there have been architects in their 40s in the past. There have been, and in, in the case of Fry Otto, who was selected and unfortunately uh, passed away in March, just a few months before the ceremony. And he was, uh, I believe he was 89. So I think that that is, that is the beauty of the Pritzker, is that the jury can interpret those broad goals. And I think... Uh, I have to say, I think it's very positive to sometimes give the prize for someone who, in the case of you, you have mentioned Alejandro, has a 20-year career and not a 70-year career. But it shows it shows an optimistic point of view. It shows a hope for the future works and a confidence that the future works will be as solid and significant and as profound as as the previous works that that the architect has undertaken so i i i don't know can i i think i have to disagree with you i kind of like the fact that the rules are not so hard and fast that they have to be broken but the rules are broad enough so that, that they can encompass a lot of different and sometimes unexpected choices. Martha, I just have one more somewhat technical question about the jury proceedings. Is it simply a, a basic democracy or just like the most votes for whichever nominee wins? No, they don't vote. <laughs> well, so, so what is the process? Please describe the specific process. Yeah, it's, it's, as, as I tried to describe, it, it is, if you can think about a spiral that starts out very broadly and there's a, a conversation that, that is, it's a very broad conversation in the beginning, and then it circles around and becomes tighter and tighter and tighter, like a funnel. And in the end, there is uh, usually very clearly one name or, or a partnership, as in the case of uh, Sejima Nishizawa or in the case of Herzog. And Although I wasn't there at Herzog and Demeron, I can imagine. The jury participates, uh, all members participate in this discussion and debate. They seek to look at 
not only the broader issues, but the work of uh, the candidates from many, many different perspectives to try to understand the facets, all the facets of, of their work. And then, of course, they have to come to a conclusion about what is the message that they're trying to give and what is the message through the excellence in the work of the laureate or, or the, the nominee or nominees. So in, in the end, it's, it's not sort of, a, it, it's not a dry process of ticking boxes or counting votes. It is a discussion until everyone is convinced that they've looked at the issue from a very holistic point of view. They've looked at the candidates from many points of view, and they're all comfortable with the, that candidate or partnership that has risen to the top. Martha, one question I wanted to ask you about was, um, how does the jury, how does, how does the Pritzker Foundation, how do they receive the criticism from um, other architects such as Patrick Schumacher and others who have been who are coming out on Facebook today even criticizing this decision? Oh, I, I, I think it's fine. I mean, I think the jury in that sense, I, I think the on one hand, the, the jury is very much open to different points of view. There's certainly all people who within the jury, there are different uh, ways of seeing the world. And if there are even more ways of seeing the world on the outside, I'm sure it's something that they think is a very healthy reaction and uh Debate is part of the the purpose of the Pritzker Prize to encourage debate around architecture, to raise the level of debate, to engage more people in the discussion of architecture. So I can imagine the jury thinks it's it's really positive, and and I certainly do from a personal point of view. So I just have a question that might be very silly, but it might not be depending on what your answer is, and that is that I, I feel like I have heard rumors over the years that the Vegas bookmakers actually put odds on who's going to win the Pritzker every year. Have you ever heard this rumor? No, but but I know that I know that this happens in Great Britain with the RIBA gold. I I know that it happens there. I'm not sure, but if they do in Las Vegas, well, you know, I would give them the advice that I, that I give to anybody. I've been with the Prisco organization since 2005, and of course, when I go into the jury meeting, I always think, well, you know, who's it going to be this year? And I sort of I sort of think in my own mind. Oh, what's the jury going to decide? And I would say in probably about 95% of the cases, they decide something totally different than I could have imagined. So if the bookmakers in in Las Vegas want to try to take bets, more power (laughs) to them, but but good luck. Well... Judging by the predictions and all of the Pritzker polls that we saw around the internet in the last couple of weeks, uh, whoever selected Alejandro would have made a lot of money. <laughs> he was—he didn't make too many of those lists, but I think uh, we, we uh, here at Arconnect, we really love his work and we think it is a good decision. So next up is the ceremony, correct? And that's going to be taking place in, in New York this spring? Right, that's correct. First of all, thanks thanks for for your kind words towards the towards the decision of this year. You know, I think even if there are some people who may not agree with it, and I and I from what I've seen so far, there's been overwhelming positive response. I think to talk about the social role of architecture and the relevance it has is is really something that's important for everybody. And yes, the, the ceremony will take place at the United Nations, and we're really thrilled and honored to be hosted at the United Nations, and that will take place on April 4th. 
And of course, the ceremony, you know, there is a limitation on the space and it's an invitation that Pritzker family extends. But on April 5th, we will be having a um, panel discussion with past laureates and with Alejandro Aravena talking about the challenges facing architecture in the coming years. And that April 5th will be open to the public, free and open to the public. And that's something that, that I think provides a forum, at least one, one of, um, I hope, many activities that we can undertake where people can listen to the laureates. They can also participate in the discussion and hopefully broaden and deepen the debate about architecture and where is it going and how it can be even more useful to society as we move forward. Well, Martha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We know today of all days must have been very busy for you. And so we really appreciate you taking the time and engaging with the discussion further and, and not having just this, this just be another, you know, awards announcement, but really digging into it and, and getting to know what this will mean for the future of architecture. It certainly is my pleasure. Thanks so much. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Likewise. Thanks so much, Martha. Thank you. So that was nice talking to Martha to get some uh, insight into the world of the Pritzker Prize. What did you guys all think? Donna? <laughs> You know, I, I have been reading a lot of social media comments and whatnot today about the, the prize, and I'm of two minds. One is I think there is some validity to the accusations that a lot of people give that basically architects just like to give awards to each other. Like that's what we do through the AIA and through publications that we just like to, to, to yeah, give each other awards. But I would also question don't all... I don't understand, but that's, that's the whole point of the Pritzker. Well, What's the criticism? My criticism is against people saying that that's all we do is give each other awards. Mm. When then you look at someone like the Pritzker and Martha specifically saying, well, the Pritzker prize is trying to send a message. We're trying to put something into the greater public domain beyond just architect, you know, beyond just the audience of other architects and say, this is a message that we are trying to push about architecture. Mm. So I think that prizes in general, people, it's easy to scoff at them. But then you have to ask, but it gives us something to talk about and it's a point of discussion. So is it that good for us all that we're all talking more about it, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think that no no one would think that any any award, prestigious or relatively unknown, is going to be a completely meritocratic decision in any regard. And especially for something as talked about and, and given the absurd comparison note, like the Nobel Prize of Architecture <laughs> for award, like the Pritzker, it's it's already enmeshed in its own society in such a way that it is going to have that degree of nepotism. And, and as we discussed with Martha, it's, it's hard to hone in on exactly what that might mean. But I think that in general, like the, that if we accept the fact that, yes, of course, there's going to be some degree of just, you know, everyone backslapping, everyone slapping everyone else on the back, that still it seems as if there's this something that is going, happening that is strange when the Pritzker says something like, uh, we want this to both be an indication of truly great world-changing architecture while we're also highly aware of the current trends that we're trying to send a message about and we're trying to be present in that way. I think that's kind of like a having your cake and eating it too. Like we want to reward good architecture, but only so long as it's sticky on social media. <laughs> that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the vibe that the cynical side of me is going towards. Hmm. Ken, what are you left with? <laughs> you know, I think, there, I think it is probably, I mean, when the Hall of Fame votes for football players or baseball players, it's the writers that do the do the voting and do the discussing, not the ball players. 
because the ball players are going to vote for other ball players and they're going to vote for their heroes. So I mean, the, to say that there's an objective, you know, decision being made here, it's hard to see that way when the person who's just left the jury is then getting an award and is also the uh, curator for the Biennale. So it's just it's problematic from that standpoint. And I still firmly believe that you know that Alejandro's a year older than me, and and you know I mean I yeah. can't even imagine to begin that I've created you know I haven't been an architect as long as Alejandro. But I just find it impossible for anyone to stomach the idea that someone who's only built a career on, uh, over 20 years. And if you really want to look at the look at a 20 year career, we can't consider the first five or six years because you're talking about, you know, he, he could have maybe his body of work is representative of the past 20 years. And then the you know previous to that. But again, he's we're about the same age. So I can't I have a hard time considering when you look at his work that that is representative of and embodies uh, a Pritzker award winner. There's certainly a lot more architects out there in the sea that have work that uh, far exceeds what Alejandro has done and is certainly worthy of uh, winning this this award. Paul, what about you? Final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm echoing a lot of, of uh, my fellow co-hosts' sentiments. <laughs> um, I, I really think that as deserving of this award as I believe Aravena is, he, assuming that his work continues at the pace that it has been and that he continues on this mission of his, he will be so much more deserving of it in the future when I think he probably deserved to get the award more so than today, especially considering that he's just coming off of seven years of being very intimate with a jury that he has been very active in promoting the direction of the prize. So it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff here that, that makes it impossible to not think that there's a conflict of interest or at least a lot of, a lot of personal bias. You know, it also makes me question, you know, why we are giving so much importance to the Pritzker Prize. You know, there, it's, there's so much feedback each year when the, when the winners are announced, both positive and negative. It's very controversial. But, you know, why, why doesn't someone step in and, and offer an alternative? There, there are a few alternatives, but why is it that we give so much, so much more weight to the Pritzker Prize? I'm curious about that. I don't, I don't really know why. And it would be nice to kind of look into that a little bit more. Paul, I think some of our trusty Arconnect writers are actually working on that exact topic right now. So keep your I, eyes I peeled. I heard some buzz about that around the office, yes. So I think possibly shortly after this airs, tomorrow, on okay. Thursday, yes. Paul has the inside track on the behind-the-scenes activities. <laughs> so next year, I plan to visit a psychic at least a week or so before the Pritzker is to be announced, and we will get that prediction on Arconnect as soon as possible. Isn't there like a, a lobster or something out there that always predicts the World Cup? Maybe the octopus. Maybe, oh, I the think octopus. Yes. Octopus. Maybe there's some kind of animal that can predict the. I love it. Um, yeah. What, what animal would that be? Arcanic Sessions listeners, let us bird. know. It's got to be a bird. It's got to be a bird. A bird. Because <laughs> okay. they get the aerial, they get the fan view of everything. A booby. A blue-footed booby. They don't fly, do they? Does it matter? Just like saying the word booby. Less of a chance that they'll fly into a window. I wish we could end this week on uh, with some Bowie music in the background, if that was if that was legally allowed. <laughs> we could you could sing it. One of we us can sing it. Go, Paul. Go. Was right. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for yeah. listening. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, thank you everyone for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag 
ArcConnect sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes, giving us some feedback. We really enjoy any feedback, both good and bad. It really helps us determine how we move this podcast forward. And if you have not yet, remember to subscribe to our other podcast, Arconnect Sessions One-to-One, which is strictly interviews. And the next uh, one is, I believe, coming up soon on Monday, right? Correct. Um, It will be with architecture critic for the New York Times, Michael Kimmelman. That'll be a good one. All right. Thanks to my co-hosts and thanks to everybody for listening. Talk to you guys next week. Until next week. Thanks, guys.